This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, September 10th, 2015. Episode 16, Concerning Coin-Eating and a Demon Child. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. Last week, we lost two people who cast Long Shadows, um, and I'm rather cobbling this episode together as a kind of joint in memoriam. Um, but I did want to offer some tribute to these figures who have meant quite a lot to me personally, uh, and whose work indeed ties into the themes of this podcast. These two people are the author and neurologist Oliver Sacks, who died on Sunday, August 30th, and the director Wes Craven, who died the same day. Um, Though whereas Sacks had publicly and eloquently written about his cancer and prognosis, um, Craven's death, also from cancer, uh, came as much more unexpected news uh, to his fans. Now, on the one hand, it's just the coincidence of a date that throws these two men together, but they also occupy prominent places in my mental map of influences. Um, they're major figures in fields I care a lot about, uh, namely cognitive science and horror as a genre. I'm not going to go into detail eulogizing Sachs and Craven, uh, and there have been lots of good obituaries published over the past week if you want more details about their careers. But I did want to take the opportunity to say a few things. To start with Oliver Sacks and neurology, neuroscience has taken a bit of a beating over the last few years, uh, not entirely undeserved, for overpromising, uh, for perhaps overestimating how much we can conclude from, uh, for example, scans of brain activity, uh, and certainly the spike in popularity of pop science distillations of the research and attempts to apply it in self-help books and in half-baked sociology, uh, these things have helped fuel the backlash. Um, as a best-selling author, Sachs is certainly part of that phenomenon, but because his writing was so rooted in his own experiences and observations and in the individual stories of the people he was writing about, I think he avoids sliding into the brain-hacking guru mode that some other neuroscience writers and popularizers fall into. I don't remember exactly, uh, but I'm pretty sure that I first became aware of Sachs through the 1990 movie Awakenings uh, with Robin Williams and Robert De Niro. Um, and I would have been about 12 when that came out. Uh, and later in high school, I got to know his work proper by reading his books, uh, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, originally published in 85, and uh, An Anthropologist on Mars, which came out in 95, um, probably right about the time my interest was peaking. Sachs's case histories are also amazing for the way he so capably does something that I try to do in this podcast, which is presenting situations that are bizarre and a bit freakish in a way that balances both a recognition of that strangeness and the natural curiosity that it spurs in us uh, with recognition of and sympathy for the human beings that are involved, and respect for the shared aspects of human experience that underlie even the most alien-seeming conditions. His books never turn into a sideshow gallery, 
but they also don't downplay the profound difference of the cognitive and perceptual disorders that he's recounting. It's a remarkable feat of cake by location, um, being both on the plate and in the mouth at the same time. And because he focuses primarily on patient stories, Sachs's work is also a great example of one of the more important methodologies in neurology, which is learning about the underlying structures and mechanisms that create quote-unquote normal experience uh, by examining the nature of experience when one of those structures or mechanisms has broken or become exaggerated due to stroke or trauma or abnormal development. I think it's interesting to consider approaching literature from a similar perspective. We often talk about literature as containing great truths and making profound statements about life and the world. But what if we think about the world portrayed within literature in a different way? That the model of the world produced by a work of literature is necessarily less than the totality of experience. Um, both language and narrative must, by nature, reduce the world, distort the world, fragment and reassemble the world into their own vision. In this sense, every literary world is like the world as seen by a stroke victim. It's a disordered vision. Um, but by analyzing the nature of the disorder, we might better understand the way we all model the world in our heads. Uh, perhaps seeking out affirmative truths about the world within literature is a bit of a fool's errand. Uh, perhaps what it can better teach us is the myriad ways in which we keep getting and always will get the world wrong, uh, which really is just a kind of a variation on the ancient notion that all art is fundamentally about artifice, um, about art itself. But in some ways, uh, despite maybe seeming superficially pessimistic, um, I think this pathological approach to literature um, actually puts more focus back on the human condition uh, than the art for art's sake framework does. At the very least, I think it works well for contemplating medieval historical narratives, uh, like the chronicles that make up much of the content for this podcast. Uh, for a long time, historians struggled with this binary position of either accepting a given chronicle as historically accurate uh, or dismissing it as fiction. And when faced with texts that seem to blend fiction and history, uh, then having to try to draw finer and finer lines separating the true from the false or the reliable from the unreliable, uh, first perhaps between sections of a text, then episodes, then scenes within episodes, and then uh, down to the level of individual details. Um, this is one dilemma that literary critics have been able to help with over the last century, um, and today it seems that historians are um, considerably more at peace with the inherent artifice of historiography, uh, not just that produced by superstitious and credulous, um, or in some cases politically savvy and manipulative uh, medieval chroniclers, uh, but in all narrative history, even histories written by empirically-minded scholars of today. Uh, that said, certainly in my preparations for many of these episodes, I end up reading quite a bit of 19th century scholarship uh, where the attitude of the historians remains almost painfully binary, uh, where the judgment of a chronicle will be something like um, the text of these two embedded charters uh, is important and the account of the battle of such and such may preserve unique local witness to the position of the king's troops, uh, but the rest of the chronicle is no better than fiction and can be ignored. 
But of course, there's so much more we can do with these texts than just sift the truthful wheat from the fictional chaff. Uh, and I've drifted rather afield from remembering Oliver Sacks, uh, so let me give him the last word to conclude this part of the show. Uh, here's Sacks reading from the introduction to The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. I feel myself a naturalist and physician, both, and I'm equally interested in diseases and people. Perhaps, too, I am equally, if inadequately, a theorist and dramatist, am equally drawn to the scientific and the romantic, and continually see both in the human condition, not least in that quintessential human condition of sickness. Animals get diseases, but only man falls into sickness. My work, my life, is all with the sick, but the sick and their sickness drives me to thoughts which perhaps I might otherwise not have. So much so that I am compelled to ask, with Nietzsche, as for sickness, are we not almost tempted to ask whether we could get along without it, and to see the questions it raises as fundamental in nature. Constantly my patients drive me to question, and constantly my questions drive me to patience. Thus, in the stories or studies which follow, there is a continual movement from one to the other. Rather than proceeding on now to thoughts about Wes Craven and horror, uh, perhaps we should get into this week's text, and then afterwards I'll talk about Craven. Thinking about it, I probably should have talked about him first, uh, rather than alienating who knows how many of you with uh, literary shop talk. Anyway, um, for this week, I dug around in my stockpile of texts to see if I could find uh, first something with a neurological angle to it, uh, and then something else with a horror angle um, to serve as tribute texts for Sachs and Craven. Uh, and I managed to find one with both of these right in sequence um, so that I can present it uh, without having to chop it up or edit it at all. So today's reading comes from the Lanarkost Chronicle, which we last heard from in episode two, um, in an episode that was a little series of strange and miraculous events, uh, mostly involving lightning strikes. Today's text is another little catalog of notable, uh, which is to say freaky, occurrences uh, from the year 1293. The first of these has the neurological angle, and the last is a little horror story. Um, and then there is some stuff in between uh, that I'm leaving in partly because it's pretty short uh, and also because some of it is interesting in its own right um, and also just to preserve the flavor of this kind of chronicle uh, which just serves up a string of categorically varied information without any particularly strong organizational pattern. Uh, that's part of its charm. So the following comes from the translation of the latter part of the Lanarkost Chronicle by Sir Herbert Maxwell. Now, whereas virtue shines clearer by contrast with vice, it may be permitted to put in writing what I know to have happened nine years ago. In the west of England, about twelve miles from Bristol, there dwelt in the country town of Wells, a church which is divided into portions for secular canons, a certain prebendary, whose life I know not how to describe otherwise than by means of an observation by St. Augustine, 
who said that he who lived well could not die amiss. When God in his good pleasure had numbered his days, he permitted him to be grievously afflicted, and later on, as the disease increased, he sent some Minorite friars to be at hand for his assistance. They, indeed, having been informed beforehand by rumor about the invalid, met on their journey a messenger who explained his master's condition to them. When they arrived at his house and ascended to the attic where he lay in order to comfort him, the sick man declined or hesitated to take the medicine they had brought, desiring them to go down to the hall and refresh their bodies with food, seeing that they must be fatigued. Also he kept with him, as his whole household, a boy to assist him and to do his bidding, and when the others had begun their meal, he bade this boy bring him out of the open chest which stood opposite his bed a silver bowl which he would find within, full of silver and gold. When this was brought to him and placed in his lap, he stared at it with startled and fixed gaze, and thrusting in his hand attempted, as if smitten with mania, to thrust the yellow metal into his mouth, biting and sucking it as if it had an exquisite flavor. Then the simple lad beside him rushed in horror down to the hall, crying for help because his master, like a lunatic, would not stop devouring coins. The friars, running up in haste, found the whole chamber swept and the corpse of the defunct thrown on the bare ground, stripped naked and darker than lead. Moreover, it bristled from head to heel with coins stuck in it, just as a cook sticks lard into all parts of meat for roasting when they wish to make it more toothsome. This event took place in the year when Alexander, King of Scotland, departed this life, and was told to our congregation by a friar who belonged at that time to the convent of Bristol, and so was fulfilled in this wretch the saying of the holy Job in the twentieth chapter, He shall vomit the riches he has devoured, and God shall draw them out of his belly, etc. There happened in this year a great scarcity of victual, so much so that in many places a quarter of wheat was sold for thirty shillings. At the same time, Gilbert, Earl of Gloucester, who had married King Edward's daughter, the Lady Joan of Acre, so-called because she was brought to light in that place when her father was a pilgrim in the Holy Land, having had a son by her, immediately made over the whole of his English property to the royal hands in such manner that he, the king, should endow his infant grandson out of his bounty, while the earl undertook the office of guardian till the end of his life. Early in the morning of Saturday, next before the feast of St. Margaret Virgin, as I was traveling with my scrip, we beheld in the east a huge cloud, blacker than coal, in the midst whereof we saw the lashes of an immense eye, darting fierce lightning into the west, whence I understood that Satan's darts would come from over the sea. Sure enough, on the Sunday following, there began and continued throughout the night over the whole of the west part of the Diocese of York thunder and lightning so prodigious that the dazzling flashes followed each other without intermission, making, as it were, one continuous sunlight. Not only men were terrified and cried aloud, but even some domestic animals, horses for certain. In some places, houses were burnt or thrown down, and demons were heard yelling in the air. On the Feast of All Saints, Henry of Galloway, a bishop beloved of God, departed this life, to whom succeeded Master Thomas of Dalton, who was consecrated at Ripon on the Feast of the Assumption of the Most Blessed Virgin. Also, on Sunday following the Feast of St. Martin, 
the daughter of Robert, Earl of Carrick, was married to Magnus, King of Norway. In the same year, there was intestine naval warfare between the English and the French at St. Matthew and part of Brittany, where the French lost 214 vessels and 6,060 men, but on the English side, only three men perished. Item. Friar John of Peckham, Archbishop of Canterbury, died, and Holy Robert of Winchelsea was elected to the Archbishopric of Canterbury. Item. The Comte de Bar was married to Eleanor, daughter of King Edward. On the Saturday before Palm Sunday, which in that year fell on the 4th of the Ides of April, there took place in Lothian an event most marvelous, enough in itself to warn wise persons that it is evil spirits that stir up tempests, and also to teach the ignorant that, according to the teaching of the saint, in every act and at every step thy hand should make the sign of the cross. Verily, on that day, when crowds gathered in the town of Haddington from various districts to attend the market, a young fellow with an equally young wife came thither with his neighbors from a distance of six miles to buy some necessaries. But there occurred such a dense fog and driving snow as struck with dismay the countenances of all who beheld it. Having done their business, the couple were returning home about midday, and the wife, who was a hale and hearty young woman, was riding on the horse behind her husband's saddle. On arriving at a rivulet about half a mile from their house in the town of Lazenby, she persuaded her husband to let her alight from the horse and follow on foot while he went forward to the house and ordered a fire to be kindled against the cold. He consented out of love for his wife, and no sooner was she left alone than suddenly she encountered by the side of the stream an evil spirit of a pale countenance but presenting the appearance of a girl scarce seven years old. This creature, seizing the woman by the left hand with a hand like a horse's hoof, tore the flesh off her arm and flung her terrified into the water. Then, as she struggled to rise, it dealt her such a gash between the shoulders that a man's fist might easily be thrust into the wound, and as it cruelly handled the woman who resisted with all her might, it made some parts of her body black and blue, and other parts deadly pale, tearing off the flesh, as was said, and as those who saw and touched her have testified to me. The husband, wondering why she tarried, galloped back to her, and finding his wife almost in a swoon, placed her on the horse and took her home. Strengthened through confession and by extreme unction, she showed to all who visited her the humor and extravasated blood, and departed this life on the second weekday following. So a little bit of Charles Bernstein's original Nightmare on Elm Street theme there to underscore our demon child monster movie. But before I get to Wes Craven, uh, I have to touch on the coin-eating mania of the first anecdote in this excerpt from the Lanercost Chronicle. This is one of those cases where it's tempting to take the first detail, the detail of the manic coin-eating, as real reportage and then take the more supernatural follow-up detail about the discolored flesh embedded with coins uh, as elaboration and exaggeration. To do that sifting of truth and fiction I was um, just complaining about. Uh, this temptation is, of course, because the coin-eating, though bizarre, is nonetheless consistent with observed human behavior. 
uh, we could take this as an example of pica, um, the disorder in which one feels compelled to eat non-food items, um, including dirt, stones, bits of paper or wood, uh, though it tends to become more recognized clinically when patients show up um, with abdominal trauma after eating glass or nails or thumbtacks or lengths of wire, uh, items which don't pass through soft tissue quite as nicely. Now, in my scan of the literature, uh, pica is generally noted as a long-term condition, uh, though it can be transient uh, and apparently can crop up during pregnancy and fade away again. Um, but it generally does not seem to come on in sudden fits as we have in this story. Uh, so I'm not sure we could safely assume that the story of deathbed coin eating is an example of pica. But on the other hand, coins do show up as a pica-related edible. Uh, I found one relatively recent example of this in a case history from 1998, which describes a 75-year-old woman who showed up at the hospital complaining of abdominal pain, and after x-ray and surgery, was found to have uh, 175 pounds, 32 pence worth of coins in her stomach. Now, she had a history of schizophrenia, uh, though the researchers conclude that this had, quote, little phenomenological overlap with the pica. And she started compulsively eating vitamin pills when she was in her early 40s, uh, which over time broadened into an interest in other objects. To quote the paper, This compulsion to ingest objects to provide some minutes of relief from anxiety has been maintained since. At different times, she has eaten tablets, coins, nuts, wire, plastic, purple hearts, Bob Martin's dog conditioning powder, and dried flowers. A uh, little editorial aside, um, purple hearts, by the way, I had to go look up. Um, this is apparently a slang term for uh, pills of the antidepressant uh, Dexamil, and not, in this instance, uh, medals given to soldiers wounded in combat. Um, all right, now resuming the quote from the researchers. There is much comment made throughout her medical notes detailing vigorous negotiations about the color, size, number, timing, and supply of medication, including a large batch of handwritten letters to her doctor. She was invariably evasive about coins, which seems to be a combination of embarrassment and a desire not to be interfered with. Uh, ultimately, the doctors ended up treating her by supplying her with as many vitamin tablets as she wanted, um, so that she might eat those as an anxiety-reducing mechanism. Um, though the researchers note that while this reduced the coin eating, it did not eliminate it. Pika still seems to be a fairly mysterious condition, um, or maybe even multiple conditions, all being grouped under the same label. Interestingly, it is sometimes associated with other dietary deficiencies, um, such as iron deficiency, um, but it also appears with disorders like autism and psychosis. Its specific neuropathology remains unclear. Of course, in our medieval story, the other thing to bear in mind is that this is all being framed as a moral lesson. Uh, so sin will out, and even someone who may seem to have lived a pious life will have their greed and miserliness made manifest at the moment of their death. Um, so it's rather hard to take any of it at face value. Of course, the idea that one's sins directly contribute to the specific horror of one's demise 
is a staple of the modern horror film, which itself traces its tropes back through fairy tales and myth. Uh, This is the rubric of the quintessential slasher film. Of the assembled cast of hapless teens, the ones who have sex and do drugs and engage in any other vices of the age, uh, these are the ones to be murdered first, and the virtuous and chaste girl is typically the sole survivor. Uh, We're now at a point, of course, um, since Wes Craven's Scream, and more recently with Joss Whedon's Cabin in the Woods really driving the nail into the coffin, uh, we're at a point where we're so aware of this particular trope that it almost can't be done uh, without sliding into parody um, nowadays. And it's a curious thing, too, uh, that our little horror episode of The Monster Child here is so devoid of moral judgment. Uh, The young wife really doesn't do anything wrong to merit the brutal and ultimately lethal assault that she suffers, uh, short of, as the opening statement suggests, uh, not in every act and at every step making the sign of the cross, uh, which, let's face it, is not very practical advice. Uh, Its partner statement, uh, that evil spirits are out there causing trouble, seems more likely to be the primary message. Uh, That is, the boogeyman is real, and if you bump into him alone on a road, he's going to mess you up, um, even if he does look like a seven-year-old girl. Though it's presented specifically as a demonic encounter, uh, this story has a lot in common with other medieval ghost-slash-revenant stories, uh, with the emphasis on an encounter with what initially looks like a person, but soon proves to be a warped, monstrous version of a person uh, who then attacks physically with superhuman strength. Uh, The Norse sagas feature some of the best examples of these kinds of ghosts, um, though they do crop up in the Latin literature of England as well. Um, And some would class Grindel as a variant on this theme. Uh, But besides their notable corporeality, Uh, Another feature of these entities is that frequently they will just attack whatever gets in their way. Um, They're not agents meeting out some kind of supernatural justice to the weak and sinful. Uh, They're mainly just nuisances um, that usually were troublemakers and bullies while they were alive and continue to be so after death, uh, but turned up to 11. And this punishment of the innocent is a theme Uh, To make a slightly clumsy segue, uh, it's a theme that Wes Craven explored. Uh, You see it in one of his uh, lesser regarded films, but one that I rather like, uh, the film simply called They, in which monsters linked to childhood night terrors stalk and kill a a selection of young adults um, who really have done nothing wrong other than, by no fault of their own, uh, having made contact with this monstrous dimension. Uh, You also see it in Craven's The Hills Have Eyes, uh, whose ill-fated Carter family are also guilty of nothing more than getting on the wrong road in the desert. Before his death made me really think about it, um, I probably wouldn't have cited Wes Craven as a particularly significant artistic influence for me, um, if I'm honest. But I am a horror movie fan, Uh, And I do have a particular fondness for the directors of suburban 80s horror. And of those, Craven definitely stands, uh, for me, well above many of the others. 
so many of the 80s classics are unapologetic schlock, uh, with the Friday the 13th series probably being the most unapologetic of them all, um, and also the most covertly moralistic. Uh, but Craven's A Nightmare on Elm Street floats high above the fray. Uh, there's an intelligence to Craven's movies that separates them from much of their competition. But they remain playful and inventive as well. Uh, and as a personality, Wes Craven uh, had that wonderful mid-American gentleness and friendliness that helps remind us that to create powerful and evocative horror, you don't have to adopt a ghoulish outsider persona. You don't have to put on the trappings or pretense of madness or be tormented by personal demons or be filled with contempt for the normal and the conventional uh, which is a lesson we all should have learned countless times before, of course. Um, but I never cease to be amazed at comments you still see from people suggesting that one must be a madman or a monster if one is creating madmen and monsters. Anyway, I thought I'd shout out a few Wes Craven recommendations. Uh, my two favorites, um, well above A Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, which I'm personally not quite as passionate about, um, though I certainly defer to its entirely merited uh, masterpiece status. Uh, my favorites are 1991's The People Under the Stairs, which is a lovely little twisted funhouse of a movie with some great production design and some wonderfully unhinged performances. Uh, and also The Serpent and the Rainbow from 1988, um, which, looking at it now, um, has some political issues uh, as far as its representation of Haiti and Haitian culture, uh, but for my money, it delivers some of Craven's best scares and most memorable images. Um, and I would be remiss not to point out a medieval connection in Craven's career. Um, his breakout film uh, was The Last House on the Left in 1977, uh, which is highly regarded, um, though also not actually one of my favorites. It's a bit too realistically brutal for my tastes. Uh, I prefer my Craven horror um, with a touch of the fantastical or the absurd. Um, but the plot for Last House on the Left is inspired by Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring um, from 1960, which uh, is a story set in 13th century Sweden uh, of a father getting revenge on the men who raped and murdered his daughter, um, but who then unwittingly show up at his house and try to spend the night there. Uh, and though it is indeed a brutal film, um, The Virgin Spring is a movie I highly recommend. So, requiescat in pace, Oliver Sacks and Wes Craven. On a lighter note, uh, let's wrap up our riddle from last time. The hint I gave was that it related to a current news story. The riddle, uh, another riddle of Symphosius, as translated by Elizabeth Hickman Dubois, was, There is a little beast to all he's known, whom, if you catch, you'll hesitate to own. And if you catch him not, to come along, he's prone. So the news item I had in mind uh, was the emergence of super lice in 25 states in the U.S., uh, just in time for back to school. Uh, these being lice that are drug-resistant to over-the-counter lice treatments. Um, and that's basically the answer to our riddle. The little beast is, in Latin, uh, pendiculus, or the louse a commonplace of medieval life um, that might be commonplace again if Laos evolution continues apace.
And here's our new riddle in the spirit of slasher films. What was he that slew the fourth part of the world? Once again, what was he that slew the fourth part of the world? I'll be back next episode with the answer. Uh, And I've neglected to do it for the past couple of episodes, but I had been posting the riddles. um, And now I'll start doing it again, uh, posting them on Twitter. Uh, So if you want to publicly take a guess at this week's riddle, um, you can reply to that tweet. Um, I tweet at MDT Podcast, um, if you want to follow us there. Or you can post your riddle guess or comments or questions uh, on the episodes as listed on our website, MedievalDeathTrip.com. Or you can send me comments and queries uh, via email at the address Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. I think that's going to wrap it up for this week. Here's looking forward to the changing of the seasons. And until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>